may be seated. just wanted to offer a brief introduction to our guest preacher here today. Uh, the Reverend Deacon Dr. Joshua Harper teaches biblical languages at Dallas International University. I got that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, in Dallas. And also serves as a deacon at the uh, Church of the Holy Communion, which is the cathedral for the Reformed Episcopal Church um, uh, Diocese of Mid-America. Um, and also he's got a PhD from uh, Old Testament and Old Testament from Cambridge. But more than that, he's a friend of mine. Uh, we were in seminary together um, 15, 16 years ago or so, back at Gordon-Conwell. Uh, we served at the same church together when we were seminarians doing mentored ministry and the like, and I've known each other for, um, for quite a long time. So he's doing a little tour of the Midwest, and I invited him to preach, and we're glad to have I'm here today. May I speak in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So as Father James said, I'm, I'm beginning my fifth week on the road. Uh, I'm a missionary with SIM, uh, one of the major evangelical mission agencies, and I'm posted in Dallas, teaching at a university that trains Bible translators and other people going on to the mission field. So this July and August, I've been escaping the Texas heat and driving around the northeastern U.S. and now the Midwest, seeing uh, supporters and prayer partners and visiting various ACNA churches. You are my fifth congregation to visit. It's been an encouraging time, seeing old friends, making some new ones. But as a missionary, the life of Jonah has always resonated with me. Now, Jonah is not your prototypical missionary. I mean, it's true, God called him to travel rather far away and proclaim a message to unbelievers. But let's be honest, Jonah was at best a reluctant missionary. I mean, in fact, Jonah is basically an example of what not to do when God gives you a command. (laughs) You see, Jonah's got a, a big problem. God called him to preach repentance to the Assyrians living in Nineveh and he doesn't want to do it. He would rather see Israel's enemies destroyed than to see them repent. And as I was reflecting on it, I realized that Jonah's problem resonates with our collect for today. Remember, Almighty God, give us the increase of faith, hope, and love, and that we may obtain what you have promised, make us love what you command, through Jesus Christ our Lord etc. You see, if Jonah had loved God's command, if he had wanted the same things that God wanted, then he would have delighted to do what God called him to do. But Jonah doesn't. Instead, he tries two different approaches to God's commandment. First, he tries to ignore the commandment, fleeing to Tarshish far to the west. When this fails, Jonah tries an alternative approach. He tries half-heartedly obeying the command, just going through the motions, but secretly, deep down, he's still opposing God's will. And neither option will work for him, as we'll see in a moment. God not only has other plans in store for the Assyrians living in Nineveh, he also has something to teach Jonah. The ultimate solution to Jonah's problem is, in the words of today's collect, to ask God to make us love what he has commanded. So let's look at the story of Jonah in more detail. At the beginning of the first chapter of the book, God comes to the prophet and tells him to go to Nineveh and preach repentance to the people there. Now, these aren't just any old foreigners. They've been some of Israel's fiercest enemies. Several generations before, 
King Jehu was forced to give tribute in person to Shalmaneser III, the king of Assyria. This act was commemorated in an inscription that's now in the British Museum in London. In Jonah's day, some generations after, that is in the 760s or 750s BC, the Assyrians were going through a weak period. There was a lot of internal division uh, and portents. There was a solar eclipse and all sorts of bad stuff were happening to the Assyrians. And Jonah was keen to see the potential threat they posed to Israel neutralized and dealt with. Jonah wants them destroyed. He does not want them restored. And looking at subsequent history, actually, Jonah wasn't crazy. Only a decade or so after his mission to Nineveh, a new Assyrian emperor, Tiglath-Pileser III, came to the throne as a result of a coup. And his military exploits would indeed make Assyria great again. But that's still a decade or two after Jonah's mission. So in the present, Jonah receives this unpalatable command from God. And his first inclination is to ignore God's command and run as far away as possible. He decides he's going to sail to Tarshish. That's a Phoenician trading port in probably in what's now modern day Spain. So he therefore goes down to Joppa, the port, where he finds a ship and pays his fare. Then he descends onto the ship and then down into the hold and he falls down into a deep sleep. Jonah of course, is trying to ignore God's command to flee from God's presence, to get out from under God's thumb. But nevertheless, God is going to demonstrate his power to Jonah. You see, God whips up a violent storm, so terrible that, in the words of Jonah 1, the ship thinks about coming apart at the seams. Now, the sailors are terrified. They pray to their various gods, and they cast lots to see who is responsible for this great calamity. Well, the lot falls to Jonah. So they wake him up and they demand an explanation. And he explains calmly that he's running away uh, from the God who made the heavens and the earth. And he's ignoring a direct command from God. The sailors naturally are flabbergasted. Who could possibly be so foolish? <laughs> well, of course, you and I both know, all of us know, that Jonah can't actually run away from God. Remember Psalm 139? Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? Even if I take the wings of the morning, or dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall your hand lead me, and your right hand shall hold me fast. So there's Jonah in this terrible storm, trying and failing to run away from God. And the sailors are frantically trying to lighten the ship. Jonah tells them that the only thing they really need to throw overboard is him. And as soon as they chuck him into the sea, the storm stops, and the sailors, in awe, drop to their knees and worship the Lord God. Meanwhile, Jonah is sinking into the depths of the Mediterranean. This is the worst place in his story. Sometimes in life, there are moments of great tension or suspense, and you wonder if it's possible for things ever to get better. As I was driving a few weeks ago, I was listening to an adaptation of The Lord of the Rings, and there's this moment when Frodo and Sam are climbing the cliff to get into Mordor that they have this discussion. They sort of break the fourth wall and almost talk directly to us as the readers. Uh, Sam is wondering, 
If we shall ever be put into songs or tales told by the fireside or read out of a great book, people will say, let's hear about Frodo and the ring. And they'll say, yes, that's one of my favorite stories. Frodo was very brave, wasn't he, Dad? Frodo laughed. But we're going on a bit too fast, you and I. You and I, Sam, are still stuck in the worst places of the story. And it's all too likely that some will say at this point, shut the book now, Dad. I don't want to read anymore. So there we are with Jonah now, sinking glug, glug, glug down into the sea. Now imagine that you haven't known from childhood what's going to happen next. You haven't looked at the front cover of the bulletin. <laughs> there is Jonah deep in the sea, and this dark shape approaches from the depths. I can imagine very clearly saying, shut the book now, Dad. We don't want to read anymore. But instead of letting Jonah die, Instead of writing him off as finished, God chooses to connect with Jonah in his worst, worst place. You see, as he's been sinking into the sea, Jonah reflects on his situation and he decides to pray. And that prayer was our Old Testament lesson this morning. Jonah laments that he's dying. He's banished from God's sight. Never again will he go to the temple to worship the Lord. And just as the gates of Sheol, the underworld, the realm of the dead, just as they're shutting behind him forever, never to open again, suddenly out of the darkness, this great sea beast looms with its mouth open wide, and surely this has got to be the end. But no, the Lord has heard Jonah's prayer. In fact, this great fish is God's plan to save Jonah's life, a truly unexpected deliverance being swallowed by the whale, or whatever it was, is actually God's means of rescue. And God also allows Jonah to be the first to ever ride in a submarine, if you think about it. You know, our, our gospel reading today uh, shares a similarly dark moment. The disciples are in a boat on the Sea of Galilee. The wind's against them, so the going's very tough. tough. And they were being beaten by the waves, as the text says. And then in the fourth watch of the night, 3 or 4 a.m., it's the very worst time to be awake, isn't it? The disciples see something coming across them toward the lake. What is it? Is it a ghost? Or is it something else? They start to shout in fear. They're terrified. As if the waves and the storm weren't enough, now there's something malevolent chasing them across the lake. And then... Jesus calls out reassuringly, don't be afraid, it's me. In both accounts, both for Jonah and for the disciples, God displays his great power with miracles. Jesus and Peter walk on the water. God appoints a great fish for Jonah. And in both accounts, the storms stop abruptly, and we shouldn't be surprised. Just think about our psalm. If the voice of the Lord can break the cedar trees and make mountains skip like calves, if his voice can cause earthquakes and strip the forests bare, surely it's no surprise that the Lord can command the waters and rule the seas. Indeed, he sits enthroned above the floodwaters and remains king forever. And therefore, he can give strength to his people and give us the blessing of his peace. You see, the worst moments in the story aren't a threat to God or to his power. God's able to meet us in our darkest moments and take care of us. Don't be afraid. Trust him. But in the fish, Jonah's story isn't over yet. 
Three days later, God commands the fish to vomit Jonah up, and God reiterates his command to Jonah, go to Nineveh and preach. So having tried unsuccessfully to ignore the command, Jonah obeys the Lord this time. He goes to Nineveh, but his heart still isn't in the right place. His message is, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown, and deep down, he's looking forward to the fireworks. He seems to expect that the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah is just going to be a warm-up act for God's fiery judgment on Nineveh. And so, Jonah arranges for himself a nice front row seat. He makes himself a little hut with a good view of the city. But God decides, in spite of Jonah's half-hearted obedience, to demonstrate his power through Jonah. Just as the sailors had worshipped the Lord after throwing Jonah overboard, the whole city of Nineveh repents at Jonah's message. The king, the nobles, the regular people, even the domestic animals. Everyone fasts, puts on sackcloth, and has ashes in a sign of mourning over their sins. And the Lord has compassion on them and spares them. Now, for such a reluctant missionary, Jonah's got the most amazing conversion rate. Practically every non-believer he meets ends up worshiping the one true God. I wouldn't mind seeing similar success in my own ministry. But, of course, the real problem is that Jonah doesn't want the Gentiles to come to faith. He wants judgment to come down from heaven. Boom! But the fireworks display is canceled. Have you ever felt the disappointment that happens when the 4th of July gets rained out? Or I remember a time when we were at Gordon-Conwell. Some friends of mine and I went into Boston to see the Pops concert and the fireworks, and it was this miserably gray, drizzly day, and the clouds were so low when it came time for the fireworks that all we could see was vague colored blotches in the mist. It was miserable. Well, Jonah is even more miserable than we were. He complains that he's angry enough to die. So what does the Lord do? Well, God patiently corrects Jonah's attitude. He gives Jonah a simple object lesson. Remember, Jonah has this hut, but he doesn't have a whole lot of shade in the middle of the day. So the Lord causes a vine to grow, and then a day later, the Lord causes a worm to eat the vine, which withers in the desert heat. Now Jonah is angry not only at the canceled destruction of Nineveh, but also at the death of his shading vine. And he bursts out, I wish I were dead. And God asks, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Yes, I'm angry enough to die over it. What, says God? You're grumpy about a plant that you didn't labor over or cause to grow, a plant that was here yesterday and gone today, and I can't be concerned about a whole city of morally confused people, not to mention their animals. And that's where the book of Jonah ends. Does our wayward missionary learn his lesson? Well, I rather think he did. After all, who wrote the book? But of course, the real question is aimed at us. Are we going to care what God cares about? Jonah's problem wasn't that he didn't know what God wanted him to do. The instructions were perfectly clear. His problem wasn't that he couldn't carry out the mission. No, he's competent enough at preaching, even if his heart wasn't in it. No, Jonah's problem was that he hadn't wanted to do what God wanted him to do. He did not love what God had commanded. And you know what? That's usually our problem too, isn't it? 
When you really want to do something, when it makes your heart sing, when you daydream about it, it's usually not that hard to do it, is it? I mean, I find that I usually end up doing what I want to do when I really want a second piece of pizza, let's be honest, a third or a fourth piece of pizza. I can resist for a little while, but it keeps calling out to me until I finally give in and eat it. If only I enjoyed eating my vegetables as much as cheesecake. <laughs> yeah, most of the time when I find myself sinning, the problem is really deep down in my heart. I'm loving something that I shouldn't. And the real solution to the predicament isn't just trying harder to do the right thing. No, the real solution starts from within. Unless we truly love what God has commanded, we won't do what he's commanded. But if our hearts can be taught to love what God loves, then our daily walk with the Lord becomes a delight. What did Jesus answer when they asked him about the greatest commandment? What did he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Similarly, there's a famous quote attributed to St. Augustine of Hippo. Love and do what you want. But this is what he means. When you absolutely love God and his commandments, deep down, in the very core of your being, then what naturally will flow out of the very core of your being, the natural results of this love, what you will delight to do is to please God and follow in his ways. But can we drum up this love in our hearts? I don't think so, not ultimately at least. After all, what does St. John tell us? This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And we love because he first loved us. So I suggest to you, the solution to our problem really is to pray today's collect. Almighty God, give us the increase of faith, hope, and love. And that we may obtain what you have promised, make us love what you command. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.